Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. But today we're here to celebrate... Um, Jonathan Bloom's collection of stories, The Usual Uncertainties. Um, Jonathan Bloom is the author of two books of fiction, Last Word, a novella, and The Usual Uncertainties, a story collection. He grew up in Miami and graduated from UCLA in the Iowa Writers Workshop. His stories have appeared in Gulf Coast, Canyon Review, Playboy, and in Sonora Review, among others. He's taught fiction at the University of Iowa, Drew University, and the Iowa Summer Writing Festival. Uh, he lives in Los Angeles. Please join me in welcoming... Jonathan Bloom. Wow. <laughs> Thank you all so much for coming. Uh, I'm more happy than I can express. Um, the book just came out on Friday, and this is the first reading, so this is the launch. I want to thank a few people first. First of all, Skylight for hosting the event, please. Getting to read here is a thrill. Um, and then I want to thank a few people who've come a long way to be here. Um, my mom and my brother from South Florida, thank you. Um, my sister from Atlanta. And my cousin Stefan and Bitsy from Philadelphia. So, um, <laughs> wow. Um, so the usual uncertainties is twelve stories. Um, most of them are on the new side. Some of them are older. I'm going to read excerpts from a couple of the stories, and. I, of course, wanted to choose stories that take place in Los Angeles. So I'm going to read a few pages of one story, take a little breather, and then read the f a few pages of the other story. Okay. <laughs> uh, the first story is called Weekly Status Report. It takes the form of an email. Greetings, Scrabble Club 1781 members. This week we had 39 players playing 63 games, which is slightly above our year-to-date average of 36 players playing 61 games. After three rounds, the only three and O's were Emily Mordant and Steve Pasternak. In the final round, Emily beat Steve 5-11 to 3-32 to earn the $5 payout. This is Emily's fifth 4-0 of the year, highest in the club, and her third in five weeks. Way to go, Emily. Emily Morden also had the high turn of the night with covalent for 152. Also earning payouts were Gail Cotter, who scored 140 with Monstera, Joe Greenberg, who scored 110 with Hervenia's anagram varnishy, and Marvina Graves Whitehurst, who scored 101 with Bedtimes. 
High loss for the evening, 472, went to Carl Grove, who was bested by, guess who, Emily Mordant. Emily, as most of you who read this newsletter know, increased her rating to 1904 six weeks ago at the Las Vegas Classic, only the sixth player in the 39-year history of our club to top 1900. Can she reach 1950? Speaking of tournaments, the San Diego three-way is coming up the last weekend of the month. Jillian Walpole is organizing the carpool brigade. Thanks, Jillian. And now it falls to me to report some very sad news. Longtime club member George Fry passed away on Saturday. He was 91. George, whom many of us called Gentleman George, or just Gentleman, was, for the 24 years that I've directed this club, a solid 1,000 to 1,100 player. He played for the fun of it and to keep his mind sharp and not to bring glory to himself. His humble disposition endeared him to many, and he was not infected, if that's the right word, with the highly competitive nature that many of us in the club have. <laughs> so if you were inclined, you could actually relax your mind a little while you were playing him and enjoy the game. His last game at the club this past Tuesday night was a loss against me. I jumped out to a big lead, bingoing quickly with bipolar and forlorn, then bolstered that lead with zygoma and silex, so that after 13 plays, I was up by 270. Gentlemen then played rotors to bingo. Rotors is not acceptable, <laughs> though adorers and drazera, which were both playable, are. As I say, I was beating him by 270. There were nine tiles in the bag, and for some reason, I didn't want to drive the knife in further. <laughs> However, by not challenging rotors, my year-to-date scoring average would go down, my average score against would go up, and I would be pitying an honorable opponent. I challenged rotors off the board and won, won by 345. Gentlemen, George, we will miss you. <laughs> In other club news, Anders and Carlotta Pertain, who met at Club 1781, will be celebrating their seventh wedding anniversary this coming Tuesday. For the record, that's seven couples who have met at Club 1781 and subsequently married. Fellow singles, take heart. Of those seven, five are still together today. And, and three cheers for Andy Weintraub, whose original web comedy series, The Scream, begins airing on YouTube this week. In addition, let's all put two hands together and congratulate Ala Ferguson, whose granddaughter Bethany was accepted to Caltech, where she will study mathematics and physics come fall. Now, I must clear the air of all mirth. As if the passing of gentleman George Fry was not sad enough news for one week, Scrabble lost a great lady this week. Sue Kararuk passed away after a sudden illness. She was 51. 
Many of you have known Sue for as long as I have, and I don't think any of you will disagree when I say that her name is synonymous with Scrabble excellence and graciousness. A lovelier person has never drawn seven tiles at the Artemis H. Thurm Community Center, Room B, in Mid-City. Since hearing of her passing, I have not been able to stop thinking back to the good times we all had at Club 1781, particularly those that took place before Sue met newcomer Jack Goldstein, started going on Scrabble wilderness retreats and Scrabble cruises with him, and eventually married him, resettling in Aliso Viejo with their two young children and founding a new club. There, just last year, Sue achieved her peak rating of 1857, which placed her among the top 75 Scrabble players in North America. I will never forget the Tuesday in August, 17 years ago, when Sue first showed up at Club 1781. Standing five feet two inches, with bangs that fell just above her eyebrows, freckled lightly across the nose, she was wearing a lacy white blouse, a pair of khaki short shorts, and some open-toed sandals with blue painted toenails. Her unassuming appearance bespoke comfort with self. I asked if she had ever played at a club before. She said she hadn't. I asked if she knew NASPA official tourna tournament rules, which we play by at our club. She said she didn't. I told her where she could procure a copy of them. For the first game, I matched Sue with Delia Crawl, whose rating was less than 700. After finishing my game, I walked by Delia and Sue's board just to take in the sights and noticed that Radawas and Here Into had been played. Given Delia Kral's word knowledge, it was clear that only Sue could have played those words. My heart skipped a beat. Plays such as Radawas and Here In Two, which are type one seven letter and eight letter words, will not impress an expert, 1700 or higher, near expert, me, but coming as they were from someone who had never played at a club, they made a mark. Sue won her first three games. Then Joe Greenberg came along and eviscerated her. I remember asking if she would come back again sometime. She said she would. Sue came the next week and the week after, and as the weeks passed, she never missed a Tuesday night. Naturally, people began to wonder, where did she live? Did she have a husband? What country was she from? English, you could hear, was not her first language. During her first couple years at the club, Sue made plenty of beginner's mistakes. I can recall games she and I played 15 years ago when she laid down common phonies such as Freon, Internet, and oralize. I can recall her challenging non-obscure plays of mine, such as linguae, avowers, and tie-in. She did not manage the clock well. 
However, during her first couple years at the club, it became apparent to those of us who pay attention to such things that Sue Kararuk was studying and, in the process, getting better. She began playing three-letter words that most non-competitive Scrabble players don't know, then putting front and end hooks on those words. She gained command of the high fives and the JQXZ non-bingo words. She methodically learned her type one sevens. The first time Sue beat Emily Morton at the club, as none of us will ever forget, she played isotine, nematic, toxines, rondo, cassern, and lavier for an all-time best six bingos. Then she set out to ace her type one eights. This will be the last page of this which is a multi-year study project that most of us never complete. Not knowing sauracin, sepaloid, or septeria, for instance, can be the difference between a 1693 rating and a 1704. By now, several years had passed. Sue had started to play in tournaments, and we at the club had come to know that she lived in Altadena, worked as an actuary, had a non-Scrabble playing boyfriend, and possessed a wondrous memory for words. Also, that she had grown up in Chiang Mai in the Scrabble-loving nation of Thailand, where grade school children play Scrabble as part of their English curriculum. At the last six World Scrabble Championships, five of the 12 winners and runners-up have been Thai, including world champions Panyupol Sajakorn and Pakorn Nemit Mansuk. We learned that Sue had come to LA her junior year of college to study statistics at USC and returned for graduate work two years later. Her mathematical mind, which was so adept at spotting numerical patterns, would prove to be one of her greatest Scrabble assets. Okay, that's the first one. Actually, the other story uh, also features a Jewish man and a Thai woman but a different Jewish man and a different Thai woman. <laughs> Los Angeles has the highest population of Thai people in a city anywhere outside of Thailand. All right, we'll see. <laughs> A certain light on Los Angeles. <laughs> I met her at a 7-Eleven in Chinatown. She was at the counter digging through her orange guest bucket purse, trying to find some cash to buy a bag of jalapeno flavored potato chips. I was next in line. 
How much do you need, I said, and pulled out my wallet. Here, I said, and set a $20 bill on the counter. Go get yourself a bottle of water, too. When she turned around to face me, my knees almost gave way. She was that beautiful. She had a pair of pink-tinted sunglasses perched high on her head and was wearing a zipped-up Aeropostale sweat jacket and black leggings. She had bright, tender eyes and dimples at the edges of her smiling mouth. She was tall, almost my height, with wide shoulders, long arms, tapered light brown fingers, medium-sized breasts, and a generous rear end. I wondered if she was Chinese. I ran over and got her the biggest bottle of water they had. I want to pay you back, she said. I want to take you on a date, I said. She, she didn't seem to understand. A date, I said. Let me take you to lunch. That whole week we texted, or rather I kept texting her, and she would get back to me hours later or the next day with brief guarded answers. Her name was Jiranoon. She was Thai. She had been in the US three years. Her job was casino. Sorry, her English not good. Okay, let's have lunch. I went to pick her up the following Saturday at 1 p.m. in front of the Albertsons on the corner of 3rd and Vermont in Koreatown. I didn't know why she wanted to meet outside a giant supermarket of all places, but I had decided to go along with the plan. I live off Fairfax, south of Pico, in a neighborhood that a generation or two was mostly Jewish, but is now Ethiopian, Eritrean, and mixed professional. I like Koreatown. It's got vibrant street life and good restaurants. When I arrived at the supermarket, she wasn't where she had said she was going to be, in front of the lawn and garden center, and I immediately got the feeling I'd been had. I pulled into a yellow stripe no-stopping zone, flicked on the hazards, got out of the car, and began casing the outside of the market. I texted her. A minute passed. Two minutes. It was a clear, sunny day in January, one of the best times of year in Los Angeles, a day after the rain, when the city smells green and you feel at ease as if you're being warmed and cooled at once. I gave 50 cents to a young panhandler whose eye sockets were ringed yellow. He was leaning back against some cords of firewood. Two-inch black plastic pots of succulents were out for sale in front of the lawn and garden center. Finally, Jiranoon came out through a sliding glass door, sunglasses on her head, the orange guest purse over a shoulder, a plastic bag in the other hand. She was bouncing with excitement. I came over and lightly kissed her cheek. She seemed as touched to be with me as I was to be with her. She asked where I had parked. I pointed to my car, a nice German two-seater, when we got outside, she offered me a cold 16-ounce bottle of coconut water. I had never seen such a thing. It Thailand, she said. I unscrewed the lid and tasted the drink. Not my thing exactly, but I said that I loved it. She showed me the contents of the plastic bag, eight navel oranges and six green mangoes. I kissed her on the cheek again. Who's all that for, I asked. You and me. Do we really need eight oranges and six mangoes, I asked. She told me she didn't like to buy just one of anything. She liked to have lots. She had on a tight red ribbed sweater, white pants, and tan wedge sandals. 
Her lips were plump at the middle, her long eyelashes curled up slightly. This was the best looking woman ever to look at me as though we might have a future together. I couldn't help but think of Delaney Rubin, my ex-fiance. Delaney and I had met 15 years ago when we were juniors at UC Santa Cruz. She had been a women's studies major, and when we were first getting to know each other, she was always pointing out ways that women in our society are objectified, taken advantage of, and underestimated by men. When I would reply to her with what I thought were simple truths, such as, why deny it? Every man's goal is to obtain the most beautiful woman he can. She would blow up at me, saying that's not man's, na that's not man's nature. That's the way men are socialized. If men were taught proper respect and value for women from infancy, they wouldn't think like that. Delaney, like me, had been passed over for a good-looking face. She wore her fine black hair in a pixie cut, which, though flattering, made her head look slightly too big for her body. She worked at a taqueria and played the saxophone. She smoked a lot of pot, loved obscure British female novelists of the 18th century, and took forever to come. Even though Delaney had become less fiery in her views over the years, I could still imagine her seeing me now and informing me that the balance of power between Jiranun and me was tilted way in my favor and that I was out with this woman only because of how she looked. Or maybe, like many other men on the planet, I was looking for a kind, pleasant, nurturing woman who was insecure enough that she could be made subservient to me. <laughs> I asked Jiranun how old she was. She said 39. She looked 24. I was 35. What kind of food would you like for lunch? Up to you, she said. No, up to us, I said. You want Thai food, she said. Yes, I said. I was so happy to be out with this lovely woman elated, really, that when I pulled out of the supermarket parking lot onto Vermont Avenue, I didn't notice an oncoming orange metro bus barreling up the right lane. Honking loudly, it screeched to a halt instants before it smashed into the side of my car. Careful, Jiranun shrieked. The driver shook his fists at me. I whipped the car around and floored it. Floored it. Minutes later, she had me turn left onto Hollywood Boulevard. Suddenly, we were creeping through Thai Town, with its dingy assortment of mom-and-pop groceries, noodle places, dessert shops, souvenir stands, video stores, and old apartment houses with Z-shaped iron fire escapes and open casement windows. Jiranun pointed out a four-shop strip mall where I pulled up in front of a liquor store that bordered a restaurant with Thai lettering on the sign. The restaurant was called Two Thai. Inside, a waitress greeted us and said something to Jiranun in Thai, then sat her and me next to the large window at a table that had four kinds of chili out in round condiment jars. Jiranun asked if I liked hot. I said I did. The food came out one dish at a time. First was a tom yum soup with shrimp in a flaming metal bowl. Jiranun ladled me a cup of this with its slivers of lemongrass, galangal, and cilantro and set it in front of me. 
Then came a hot spaghetti dish with chili paste and clams, which she served me with a fork and spoon. Then came an eggplant dish, and then a pancake, and finally noodles in a thick black broth that I would later learn had pig's blood. We ate ravenously, smiling at one another, sucking down noodles, and glancing back and forth. You've got quite the appetite, I said. She didn't understand. You're hungry, I said, and she nodded happily and sucked down a rice noodle. I was clearly going to have to simplify my English to make communication possible. What were you doing in Chinatown the day we met, I asked. Study English, she said, my school. What school? She told me that there's a free adult school in Chinatown that offers ESL. She goes by bus every morning from 8 to 11. What are you studying right now? Anne Frank. Oh, do you like it? She nodded. I'm Jewish, I said. Teacher Jewish, she said. Then she told me she had never met any Jewish people before she came to America. She hadn't known there were Jewish people. For some reason, this set me brimming with delight. <laughs> the world was big, and Jiranun came from a very different part of it than Delaney and I did, a part that struck me as being more authentic less advantaged, closer in kind to where the majority of the world's seven billion people live. And not just Delaney and I, Jiranun was bracingly different from everyone I knew, especially the wealthy kids I had grown up around in Hi Hancock Park, not to mention the women I later went on to date. All my life, it seemed, I had socialized with people that had gone to the same plentifully funded schools the same after-school enrichment programs, the same test prep classes, overnight camps, parties, clubs, concerts, road trips, vacation destinations. We wore the same clothes, went to the same restaurants, had the same weddings. I'd had experiences with other kinds of women. When I was in Germany for five months after my father died, studying watchmaking, I had had a relationship with a local girl from a modest upbringing who worked as a tour guide. But for the most part, I hung out with people who had gone to the same competitive universities I had and who, after graduating from those universities, had relocated for a few years to the Bay Area or New York for some prescribed sowing of wild oats, then returned to Los Angeles and either went into our parents' professions, as I did, or stepped into some other lucrative field in which they had connections, real estate, money management, construction. They bought houses and started breeding. What did any of us know about the hand-to-mouth struggle to survive? We could all fall back on our families and usually did. Jewish own all the banks, Jirunun asked. <laughs> Not exactly, I said, and forgave her ignorance. We all have misunderstandings of other cultures. I told her that I had grown up in a kosher home, that my mother was an observant Jew, but I had difficulty explaining what kosher or observant meant. Perhaps better to change the subject. What job, I asked, did she have at a casino? 
I pictured her as a bookkeeper or perhaps as a floor person or a dealer or a concierge or worst of all as a cocktail waitress in a skimpy frilly white uniform serving scotch and sodas to obsessed card players with glazed eyes. Whatever her job, I wanted to rescue her from it. As it turned out, she was a gambler who went to three different casinos a week. She didn't have a social security number, which meant there were very few things she could do for money, all under the table, Thai masseuse, Thai waitress. She'd already done both of those 12 hours a day. The pay was low and the work was hard. If I understood her correctly, for the past year, she had been supporting herself playing Baccarat seven days a week. She had taught herself the game. The way she described it, she came out ahead five days out of seven, but could only play for a half hour. After that, her concentration was shot. She put up several hundred dollars to get started and would usually leave the casino when she was up 200. She had the discipline to stop when she reached her target which was enough to pay for food, rent, and entertainment, but not too much that she drew attention to herself when she cashed out her chips. When she went to the casinos, she told me, she dressed as invisibly, as boyishly as possible, her thick, long black hair tucked up in a white twill cap with a loose-fitting t-shirt and jeans so that the crowds of leering Chinese men who populated the place didn't pay attention to her. She ventured over to the casinos after ESL class on free buses that the casinos provided. She didn't have a car, no driver's license. If she drove a car and was pulled over, the police would turn her over to immigration and she would be deported. She loved America. She wanted to stay here forever. Thanks. That was long. You guys sat through a lot. Um, thanks. Thanks for listening. Um, this is, I guess, the part of the evening that if people want to have an, hey, have, an <laughs> uh, have an open conversation or discussion, I'm game. I'm very good at evading questions. Well, um, my friend Holiday Reinhorn is here, and she reads drafts of my stories. And she said, when she read this story, she said, it's like two people are, who are having a completely different relationship, like at the same time. I was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty smart. I would never have thought of that. But yeah, um, I, it is kind of like that. Um, yeah, I mean, people are complicated, right? I mean, we, we think one thing. We say another thing, and we do a third thing, like all of us. So um, these characters probably are that way, too. Um, yeah, I mean, people are complicated. And people don't tell each other 
the true story is about so many things for a long time. I mean, I, I, in the case of immigrants, I, I think a lot about immigrants. And one of the things about being an immigrant is you don't have to tell anyone anything you don't want about your prior life, and there's no way of anyone checking up on it. So, like, the immigrants of my own family just stopped talking about anything that happened before they came to America. And I think this is true of immigrants from everywhere. I mean, part of the freedom of America is, like, the freedom to, to put it out of your mind or to not bring it up. Um, and then, yeah. Um, other question? Uh, I was going to say, there's a pub down the street, <laughs> 1739 Public House. Um, I thought maybe after we're finished here, uh, we can go have a beer together. That would be nice. Um, yeah. 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 Mm. Yeah. You mentioned that some of these are more recent and some are older. Yeah. How, how, how long have you been collecting these? Uh, the oldest one, I f it was published in 1997, so a, a long time ago. Um, but most of the stories are from the last few years. Hey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, my relationship to Scrabble is that the Scrabble dictionary or the word list that serves as sort of uh, it's like the rule the rules of Scrabble are the words that are acceptable to play and that list changes maybe every five to seven years they keep adding in many cases thousands of new words so there came a point a few years ago where they it was just one word list change too many for me I, I could no longer just try to memorize five to 7,000 new words. So I just decided I'm not gonna play Scrabble anymore. So I, I, I stopped playing completely. So when I wrote that story, I had already stopped playing. I have played competitive Scrabble, yes. Yeah. The, the, of, the, of the scores or the ratings? There's like, like, well, <laughs> okay, <laughs> okay, yeah, the rate, in, in, in parlance of Scrabble, if you have a 1700 rating, like, you're, okay, like, the, yes, yes, those are all accurate, yeah. <laughs> Somebody had a question. I, I'm sorry, I can't hear. Oh. The Scrabble story had tons of drafts. It took me years to write. Um, it, it was very time consuming. I mean, every word has been gone over carefully. So um, that story took years. Actually, the other one, which is like 60 pages, the, one, the second one that I read, I wrote it very quickly. And I was pretty much happy with it right away, so I would say maybe like six weeks or seven weeks, something like that. It varies from story to story. The first, my first published story took me five years to write, so. 
you know. Yeah. And your other work was more like just kind of deeply the topic that you really want to see with people. What is it like how do you decide that you're gonna approach this work? Yeah. Well I think um she's not being like when she says Jewish own all the banks, like I, I didn't take her to be slurring Jews. I, I took it to be like I, I've been asked that question in my life probably fifty times. Like, you know, people who don't know a lot of Jews, they you know, there's this cabal going on all of us Jews own all the banks so they're just checking it out with a real Jew <laughs> um, so I yeah that's it was I it wasn't meant as like as you know from the the first story in the book in which there's a family of Hungarian Holocaust survivors like like actual like real anti-semitism is not treated as a joke but that that particular thing that she said I, I took it as uh, someone who's completely ignorant who's just heard that Jewish people own all the banks yeah um, does that answer the question yeah yeah um. <laughs> Usually periods, like I'll write a few short stories and then I'll work on a novel and then I'll work on a few short, I'm if I'm working on a novel, I'm not usually working on stories at the same time, but if I'm working on stories, I might be working on more than one story at a time. Um, I feel more at home writing stories than I do novels. Um, just dispositionally, I prefer writing stories, but some things are novels, there's nothing you can do about it. <laughs> Yeah. Uh oh, uh, I didn't thank you guys. <laughs> Sean and Michelle, who came all the way from Oakland, California, for this event. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, totally blind. Right. Yeah. Well, I think it just starts with making up a sentence. Like making up a sentence that's not true. Like uh what what's the first sentence? I met her in a 7-Eleven in Chinatown. Um yeah, actually, yeah, I, I met her at a 7-Eleven in Chinatown. I don't even, first of all, I don't even know if there are any 7-Elevens in Chinatown. And second of all, somebody once told me a story about meeting someone in a 7-Eleven. And I was like, I will be using that at some point. <laughs> That's just too good. Um, yeah, so, I mean, I think it just starts with writing a sentence that is factually inaccurate and then just kind of following the thread to the ball of yarn, essentially. Um, you know, I will sprinkle in some details of things that I have experienced, things that I've observed, things I've imagined, and it all sort of works or doesn't. 
Um, I mean, a lot of the time it doesn't work, you know? <laughs> you can work on something for years and it, it doesn't work. Um, so, obviously I was reading things that I thought worked, but a lot of time ends up getting spent. It doesn't add up, you know? Um, is that it? Sure, yeah. Just to follow up on that last point, how do you know when to walk away from something that isn't working instead mm. of investing more time in it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, or do you ever know it? Or is it just sort of you become kind of forlorn and... Yeah, bipolar and forlorn. <laughs> um, <laughs> do you remember that detail? Yeah, yeah. Um, they go together. Um, I don't know. The, you, nobody can stop you from writing. Like, you can be stopped from doing lots of things in this world, but like, if you want to write a story, there's nothing that's stopping you from doing it. So I sort of feel like I, I just keep working just because that's what I like to do with my time. Um, but I have a lot of stories that, I have numerous stories even that were published or that I have on my computer that I didn't put in the book because I just didn't think they were good enough. Um, so I would say you don't know. You just you just keep working because you want the story to to work. Um, yeah, yeah. Who do I read? Uh, I've been reading Deborah Eisenberg's stories this week. She's good. What's that? Yeah, she is. Um, yeah. Um, how does writing you um, like your backstory? Do you, do you spend time to write your own novels either short or, or More for novels than stories. Um, I mean, my no, no, the novel I'm working on right now already has hundreds of pages of things that I'll never use. Um, and I'm only probably halfway through, so. Um, but, you know, writers cannibalize from themselves, so, like, something that's not getting used now might be used in three years. I mean, that's, I always tell my students, don't er erase or delete anything. Just keep it somewhere, and you may find a use for it later. Um. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> why did I immediately think of medication? Um, <laughs> not really, no. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I had a conversation with the second story I read. All week I was like, okay. This is going to annoy people. This is going to alienate listeners. You have a white guy reading. The woman's been in America for three years. She, she speaks an English that is very primitive. And it's going to annoy some readers that here I am like, you know, I work casino or something. Like, you know, this kind of English coming from a white person, it, it can be awkward. I mean, if I were listening to it, it might make me feel awkward. Uh, but 
for whatever reason, I decided to read it. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Sometimes. Um, yeah, it's, humor's a, a funny thing. I mean, I, I don't set out to write funny stories, but um, when I was a kid, like a little kid, I was skipped a grade, so I was always at least one, if not two years younger than the people I was in class with, and I was small. So I ended up being a humor person, like as part of my personality adjustment to those factors. And I think I've, that part of me still exists. Um, but I don't know, jokey fiction, mm, I'm a little wary of that. I think like you want everything to be in proportion, you know, dark, light, funny, not funny, sad, everything. Like uh, the complete human experience is what you're going for in a story. So, um, so you want to have like the most complex story you can so that, yeah, that's, that's usually what I'm looking for. Maybe that would be a nice note to end. Um, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.